Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. All right, let's get into the Word. Acts chapter 16, and as we do, we're going to ask God's blessing upon His Word. Lord, we've come here for one reason, and that is to meet with You. We set aside all the worries of our world and all the chaos of our lives. Lord, anything that we brought in this morning, any weight that we're carrying, we remind ourselves now that you are above all of it. You're more important than any of that. And so we set our full attention upon your word, which is able to change our, our, our hearts, our lives in just a moment. And as we hold this book in our hands, we remind ourselves that these are the holy words of God. And we want to respond in like kind. We, we want to respond as we should. And so, Lord, we ask your spirit to fall upon us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we have kind of a ominous bit of a title here, Deep Dark Dungeon Worship. That sounds kind of scary, but it'll make a whole lot more sense when you Uh, as we get into the text and you see where Paul and Silas end up in this week's text. We are continuing in our series in the book of Acts, and we're up to Acts chapter 16. But I want to begin this morning as we are talking about one kind of area of worship. This is just part one to this. As I got into this text, it was more than I could do in one week. As you know, that's not uncommon. So I'm going to string it out at least two, if not three weeks talking about this little section of Scripture and what we read today. But I want to start with a definition for worship, and then I want to give you a couple of statements that logically follow that definition. So if the definition is true, then these are true statements that follow it. Here's our definition here. Worship, whoa, that's weird. Here we go. There we go. Worship is an expression of our awe, and gratitude, and notice for what? For who God is and what He's done in our lives. You guys get that? Worship. What it is, is it's an expression of the awe that we have at who God is and the gratitude that we have for what He's done in our lives. Now, the statement that would follow that is, the more conscious we are of that, who God is and what He's done, the more we understand of who He is and what He's done from His Holy Word, the more fervent our worship will be, the more heartfelt our worship will be. That makes sense, doesn't it? The opposite is true as well, right? The less conscious we are of who God is and what He's done, then the more apathetic and disengaged our worship will be. Does that make sense to everybody? Everybody with me? So this is another way of saying it. We will worship in direct proportion to our view of God. You and I will worship in direct proportion to our view of God. That then makes worship theological. Theological. See, we often associate worship with feelings, don't we? Because oftentimes when we're worshiping, we experience different feelings. But true worship is theological because it's based on the truth of who God is as revealed from His Holy Word, right? The more we understand that, in the mind of a Christian, the more we come to know of who God is and what He's done for us, the more our hearts then will well up 
and overflow in gratitude and awe and in worship. See, it's not just based on a feeling, is it? It's not just based on circumstances. You may have come in this morning thinking, yourself, I just don't even feel like worshiping this morning. Like, I'm just not there. Rough day, rough week, rough job, rough, you know, morning getting the kids up, whatever, you know. But, but true worship isn't based on our feelings and our circumstances. True worship begins with an understanding that God created everything. It begins with an understanding that He is all-powerful. It begins by understanding that He is holy and righteous, by understanding that He is love as displayed by the fact that even though humanity rebelled against Him, He never gave up on us, did He? And even though sin created separation between us and God, He came to rescue us, right? It's theological. It's having this understanding that that Jesus was born in the perfect fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies, lived a sinless life, hung on a cross bearing our sin. The sin of all humanity was placed upon Him, and He paid the price for it. He died on that cross. He was buried. He rose three days later, just as He said He would, to prove that He has the power of the grave. And now He offers forgiveness of sin and new life to all who will come to Him by faith. That is truth. That's a true statement. That's theological. That's why we worship not based on our feelings. We see that beautifully expressed today in our text. When we left off with Paul and Silas, they were on Paul's second missionary journey. Paul had come to the city of Philippi. He was led there by the Lord, and he leads a lady by the name of Lydia to the Lord with her household. They all get saved. They all get baptized. Things are going great. He casts a demon out of, a, out of a slave girl at this time. She was demon-possessed. He set her free from that. The problem that Paul ran into in casting this demon out of this girl, though, was that she was making a whole lot of money for her masters by clairvoyant stuff, telling fortunes, and, and that type of a thing. We covered that last week. And so the problem that Paul now is going to run into is when he cast the demon out of this poor girl, he also cast the hope of making money out for her masters. And as you would imagine, they were none too happy with that. And that's where we pick up right now in verse 19. And it says, but when this girl, her, this girl who had been demon-possessed and, and had been making the money for her masters, when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, They seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. Notice that. And they're proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. So the masters of this slave girl right now that, that sees Paul and Silas, they're not being 100% honest about their motivations, are there? Their motivations were financial, right? You cast this demon out of this girl, she's making us all this money by fortune telling, and now we've lost our, our kind of scam over here on the side where we were making all this money. Their motivations were financial, but they spin it as political and religious. 
and they're playing on and using a common anti-Semitic attitude that was kind of prevalent among many of the Romans of that day. And so in verses 20 and 21, what they're saying is, we're Romans. Philippi is a Roman colony, and a Roman colony was a location outside of Rome proper that was populated and planted there by ex-Roman soldiers, so, so retired soldiers and officers from the Roman army. So these were patriots to, to Rome. And so they're saying, look, we're Roman, and these guys are Jewish guys that are coming in with this kind of different God that we've never heard of. It's against our Roman ways, and it's even illegal for us to follow what they're talking about. And they stir up the crowd, and notice that it works. Verse 22, it works quite well. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Verse 23, and when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, kind of like the inner dungeon there, and he fastens their feet in the stock heavy right there what's going on the true gospel is going out true gospel mission is going on but they now run into persecution and they're arrested illegally there's no trial there's no um there's no way for them to make a defense which is against roman law we'll see that next week they're beaten brutally roman justice prided itself on being extraordinarily cruel And so they've been beaten brutally. Now they've been thrown into the jail. And the jailer was told, hey, you make these guys as secure as you can make them. You don't let them out under any circumstances. So they're like thrown into kind of the inner dungeon. Now, maximum security. They're sitting on a cold, hard floor. And they got their feet locked down in stocks for the night. But here's the question. What would you do sitting on that floor? Like, where would your heart go if this has now been done to you? Somebody first service just yelled out, I'd be bitter, right? But, but many of us might be. We might be angry with this whole thing. We might start to plot how we're going to now defend our civil liberties, right? We've been uh, wrongly arrested, wrongly accused. We've been beaten without a trial. We're now sitting here in these stocks. We're going to fill out petitions and get people to march around this jail and call lawyers from the ACLU. We're going to get this thing. We're going to rally, man. Right? But maybe what you might do and what I think a lot of Christians will do at times is they start to get angry at God. Start to question Him. Right? I mean, after all, weren't Paul and Silas just following God and doing His work? They went where they were told to go. They're out there by the river preaching the gospel. All they did was set free this poor girl from demonic oppression. And what did it get them? Persecuted, beaten, and jail time. And it's not uncommon, is it, to to come across. I, I hear it quite often from my position. You come across somebody that runs up against a hard time, and they begin to question God, even get angry at Him. God, I'm... I'm over here serving you. I get up every morning and do my devotions. I shouldn't be going through this. I serve in the Sunday school. I share gospel with my coworkers. Man, I'm, I'm in the fight. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm there with Paul and Silas. I'm on mission. And man, how could you let this happen? 
don't you see what's happened to me? I'm, I'm on mission. Don't you care that I'm in this now? You know, I've been wrongly accused. I'm beaten. I'm sitting here with my feet in the stock. You know, whatever the situation might be. But, but let me ask you a question. Because we've gone through six and a half years of the gospel before this, right? We did all four gospels. Does anybody in here remember the section where Jesus told us that ministry with him would be easy? You guys ever see that part? Like, I don't remember that one. Like, following him on mission was going to be easy. But sometimes we think it is meant to be. But when I read the gospel, it said this, Matthew chapter 10, you will be hated by all because of my name. In this world, you'll have tribulation, John chapter 16 says. In Mark chapter 8, it says, he summoned all of the crowd and his disciples. Something he wanted everybody to know about following him. He says, if anybody wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus said, listen, you, you want to come be a part of my deal? You want to do ministry in my name? It involves denying of self, dying to self, and living self, self-sacrificially. There was a scribe in Matthew chapter 8 that comes to Jesus and he says this, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Like, I'm in. Whatever you're doing, what, I'm, I'm, I want to be on your mission. Jesus turns to him and says, Listen, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus said, okay, you want to come and be on mission with me, but you need to understand it's not always that easy. He says, I don't have a house. I don't even have a bed. I don't even have a pillow. But if you want to come, come on. But that's what ministry is like. In fact, Jesus promised his disciples hardship. In John chapter 21, he says this, they're going to lay their hands on you and persecute you. They're going to deliver you into the synagogues and the prisons, bring you before kings and governors for my name's sake. But then he says, and it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Now, you see what he's saying there? Jesus said that persecution and tough times will just be a part of real ministry in his name in this fallen world. You guys look really depressed already. Like all of a sudden, you're like, well, we came in, we were worshiping, we thought this thing was going to be good, and all of a sudden you're like telling us all this, and I don't want to hear this. Listen to what, well, if you think that was bad, listen to what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna. He wrote, Jesus said this to a church. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. That's not the way you ever want to hear Jesus' opening line to you. You're doing your devotions, you don't want to hear. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the, dev, the devil is about to cast you, some of you, into prison so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto the death and I'll give you the crown of life. What? Jesus just confirmed that ministry in Smyrna for this church was going to be hard, scary, painful, and maybe, maybe deadly. He said, don't worry about that part. I'll give you a crown of life. Jesus specifically told Ananias of the uh, ministry that Paul was going to have to go through and how difficult it was going to be. Remember, Paul gets uh, blinded on the road to Damascus. He's taken into Damascus, and the Lord wants Ananias to go and pray for Paul. And Ananias like, I don't know. I don't want to go mess with this guy. He says, no, no, no. You're going to go over there because he's my chosen instrument. He's going to bear my name to Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. And he says, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
The Lord told Paul from the beginning. He didn't, you know, kind of throw a carrot out there. No, it's all going to be good. And then he gets involved in ministry and find out that it's tough. He told him from the beginning, now let me show you how much you're going to have to suffer for my name's sake. And then when Paul and Barnabas, in turn, now go out on the mission field in their first missionary journey, they told the saints that the ministry would be tough. In fact, it says in uh, Acts chapter 14, which we covered a few weeks ago, it says, after they had preached the gospel to that city, and it was speaking of Derby, after they had preached in Derby, and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, in Antioch, places that they had been, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus never said, and especially for those on mission, Jesus never said, those who are going to follow me, it's going to be easy. Now, here, here's where... Modern church culture runs into a problem, isn't it? We've kind of changed this thing a bit. I can't tell you how many times, you know, my position as a pastor shepherd is to encourage people to get going with God, right? That's to trust in Him, to follow Him, to get engaged in different things. And so I'm constantly, you know, hey, bro, man, you need to get involved in this or that ministry, whatever it is, you know, and, and like, hey, I even offer to guys, hey, why don't you come up here and teach? I'm going to be out with this shoulder surgery thing. You come up here and teach or home groups. Hey, man, would you mind leading a home group? Or would, would you mind getting involved in youth group? Or, or, you know, children's ministry, children's ministry needs teachers. Why don't you guys go down there and teach? Or, hey, we got this worship team. We could always use another guy helping out with the worship team. And you know how, how many times I've heard people, I can't do that. Like, you guys can do I can't do that. It's too hard, too demanding, too scary, it's too challenging. What's that got to do with it? When we read the Gospels, what in the world does scary have to do with it? Hard or challenging have to do with any of it? It's all hard and challenging, isn't it, when you go for God? Where, where did this idea come from that has so permeated the church that Christianity and the goal and job of Jesus is ease, safety, and comfort in this world for us? Like, where in the world did that come from? Not from Scripture, right? But man. So much of the church today has grabbed a hold of this kind of wealth and health, this prosperity doctrine, and it's, and it's all over the church now. This, this idea that, that somehow being a, a disciple of Jesus is all about me and all what I'm supposed to get out of it. And, and when I came to Jesus, I came to Him so He could just fix all the junk in my life, right? I got this problem with this. I figured He would just fix that. Work is hard. I figured He would just fix that. You know, I'm having a hard time finding a place to live or make enough money to get my kids in school or whatever. It is. Oh, I just figured Jesus would just fix it. Where did all that come from? But it's popular, isn't it? It's popular because we want ease and comfort and security in this life. But, but can I say to you, as, as we read through the Bible, that's not Jesus' program in this world, is it? It's His program later, isn't it? Where we're going after this life, that's His program. In this world, that's not His program, is it? That's not His purpose for us. That's not His mission for us. It, modern American Christianity has gotten soft. It, it has. We have forgotten that, that Jesus left the comfort and perfection of heaven. And he came into this sin-soaked world with all of its corruption and rebellion to save souls. And what did humanity do? Hang him on a cross. 
You don't talk about misunderstood, falsely accused, and treated unfairly? <laughs> Sinful humanity crucified the Savior that, he came, that, that came to save us. And Jesus now sends His church, His disciples, us, into that same fallen world with that same message and that same mission. He said, as the Father has sent me, I send you, John 20, 21. And so the question is, if that's the mission, if the mission meant for Jesus being misunderstood, mistreated, persecuted, and suffering, why would we ever expect anything different when we joined his mission? Why would we think that it was always supposed to go swimmingly for us? You guys look really depressed right now. Let me make it worse. Jesus said this. If you don't like it, tell you who to talk to. He's the one that said it. Right here, John chapter 15. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. That's comforting, isn't it? (laughs) The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, what does it say? Naturally, they'll persecute you. Peter would write to a very, very persecuted section of the church in 1 Peter chapter 4, and he'd say this, Beloved, do not be surprised. He's writing these guys going, why are you guys shocked? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for the testing as though some strange thing is happening to you. He says, why are you guys so shocked at persecution? But notice what he says. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, how's that? There's this partnership. There's this sharing when we go with Christ on mission. He says, in that, keep rejoicing. So that also in the revolution, the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're blessed. He says, don't be surprised, guys, that, that you're persecuted. I was persecuted. If you're going to go out there and try and live a life for me, exemplify Christ in this world, and share the message of the gospel, he says you should kind of expect that it's going to go a little rough sometimes. But then he encourages us by saying, but it's a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. In the New Living Translation, it says it this way, these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. Meaning what Jesus is saying, he's saying it's confirming that you're in it. You're doing it. You get it. You're in the game. You're fulfilling the Great Commission. When these things happen to you, don't be discouraged by them. Rejoice in them because it is a co-mission between us and Him. We're not just being rejected. He's being rejected. And even so much so that when Peter and John were illegally arrested, harassed, beaten before the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem, it says in Acts chapter 5, when they went their way from the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Like, this is it. We're doing it. We're in it. We're we're on mission. We're rejoicing. And Jesus says there's a blessing in it. Listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn you, scorn your name as evil for the Son of Man. Be 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 glad, glad in that day. And then what does it say? Keep for joy? 
Like when you get rested, beaten with rods and thrown on the floor, locked in stocks, well, I guess you can't leap for joy then, but you're apparently supposed to be quite happy about it. Why? And this is the key to it. Your reward is great in heaven. See, it changes, doesn't it? Where's our perspective? Is, is our whole perspective here and our ease and comfort and what we're going through here? Or does it have a heavenly dimension to it? Where did this idea come in, this bad doctrine, that joining yourself to Jesus and joining yourself to his mission was somehow going to net for us comfort, safety, and ease? That's not what it's all about. It's about truth. It's about redemption. It's about a relationship with the God that created us. It's about living this life with an eternal purpose and meaning. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Coming to Christ and joining Him in mission and living a life with Him is the greatest thing that you could ever do. But Jesus never built it as a life of ease and comfort and safety, did He? And so what we have here is Paul and Silas are on mission with God, aren't they? They went where they were sent. They're right smack dab in the middle of God's will, but they're bruised and bloody sitting on a cold hard floor with their feet locked in stocks. So, so the question then is, what would you do? Where would your heart go from there? Remind yourself, they don't know what's coming next. Our lives live in uncertainty. We know what happened because we have the Bible in front of us, but they don't know what's about to happen. Will they be beheaded, be beheaded the next day? Will they get a 20-year sentence? Will they be beaten again? They don't know what's coming next. So as they sit there, as we would sit there, what would you do? Where would your heart go? Where would your mind go? Well, what happens to Paul and Silas next? What we see them do tells us something very special about their view of God. What Paul and Silas do in this situation tells us of their view of God. Look at verse 22. We'll just start with 22 for the full impact. The crowd rose up together against them. The chief magistrates tore their robes off of them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with what? Many blows, they threw him into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard him securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison. And he fastened their, le their legs in stocks. What do you do next? Verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. How counterintuitive is that? How is that? I mean, that's the opposite of most of our natural reaction, isn't it? That's why we named this, this thing Deep Dark Dungeon Worship, right? Why? Because it's easy to sing songs of praises when everything's going good, isn't it? When you're having a good day, everything's going good, the kids are behaving, you know, everything's good. It's easy to sing praises. But what do we do? What are you going to do? What am I going to do when the circumstances turn for the worse? What causes someone to worship when things get dark? Well, it goes back to this, where we started this message, doesn't it? That true worship 
comes from a true understanding of who God is and what He's done for us through the cross. And the deeper we understand that, the deeper our worship will be. It's based in truth, not feeling. It's based in theology, not emotion. Feelings are going to change, right? Emotions are going to change with our circumstances. Our circumstances change constantly. Our emotions and feelings will change with those. But the fact that the holy, righteous God of all creation left heaven, came to earth, died on a cross to set us free from the power and penalty of sin, that'll never change. That doesn't change. And so Paul and Silas are not worshiping God because they feel good, nor are they worshiping Him because things are going well. They're praising God because He's worthy. Because He's worthy. Because of who He is. And what he's done for them through the cross. Because they have a joy in the Lord that transcends circumstances, hardship, pain, and persecution. Their joy in the Lord transcends all of that. And they're worshiping because they're heavenly minded. That's a key for us right there. That changes things for us. They're worshiping him because they've got a mindset set on the Lord, not on the things of earth. They're not just worried about the comforts and the things that we get so preoccupied with and safety and the things of this world. Listen, Paul would later write to the Colossian church and he'd say this. If you've been raised up with Christ, if you're a born-again believer, keep seeking what? The things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's telling us to have an eternal, a kingly, a heavenly mindset. Verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. For you have died, you've died with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. He's telling us, telling the Colossians and us right here, to live for something beyond this life. To to live for something greater than this world. Paul would later write back to the Philippians, right? Remember where he is. Anybody know where he is? He's in Philippi, right? So there will be a church planted in Philippi. He's going to write back later to these guys and tell them all the things of the world, all the struggles, all of that. It's rubbish in comparison to a life lived out with Christ. Listen to what he says, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we worship? Because we feel good? No, because of His value. Because of His value. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God based on faith. Now watch, that I may know Him. He says, I count everything else as rubbish, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, that I might have resurrection power active in my life, and what? And the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. He said, I'm all right with the fellowship of his sufferings. I'm okay partnering with Christ in this world because my mindset is not here. I count all of this rubbish so that I might know him and his resurrection power. 
Paul would write to the Roman church a similar thing when he would say this in Romans chapter 8. We suffer with him so that we also might be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. Church, that is a heavenly mindset. That's an internal mindset. He says, I can, I, compared to what's to come, all of this, nothing. Not even worthy to be mentioned. And isn't that the promise of Jesus? Isn't that what we read in Luke chapter 6? Blessed is the man that hates you, ostracizes you, insults you, scorns you, uh, as your name's evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. Leap in joy. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. Let me ask you, what are you living for? Today, ease, comfort, safety, or kingdom, right? Where's our hope? Where's our love? What are the things we pursue? Now, I know all that was heavy, and I can see it from your faces. You're all like, holy cow. I'm going to go out here and get beaten with rods and locked in jail and all this stuff. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and this is where we're going to finish. And this is glorious. And the reason that I want to read this scripture to finish is because for no other reason, it illustrates why we worship. This is why we worship. It's theological, right? It's not emotional. It's not feelings. It's who he is and what he's done. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read through this. And I want you to think about the fact that this is why we worship. Uh, the second half of verse 31, Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he give us everything else? That's why we worship, isn't it? Read that again. Since he didn't spare even his own son, but gave himself up for us, won't he give us everything else? If he gave us his son, what good thing would he ever withhold from any of us? That's why we worship. Verse 33, who dares accuse us? Whom God has chosen for his own. That's why we worship. He's chose us to be his own. No one's going to accuse us. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. That's why we worship. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us. Guys, that's why we worship. He was raised to life for us. He's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. That's why we worship. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death? Verse 37, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. Amen? Guys, that's why we worship. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. That's why we worship. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, Neither the fears of today or the worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. That's why we worship. 
No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That's why we worship. It's because of who He is. Because of what He's done for us on the cross. You may have came in today and gone, I don't really feel worship today. Having a rough week. What's that got to do with anything? Is God still good? Did He still die on the cross for you? Is your future and eternity the fullness of joy in heaven with Christ forever and ever? Then that's why we worship. Has He conquered through His death on the cross? Then that's why we worship. Does He love us beyond comparison with a love that will never fail us? That's why we're going to worship. So I got an idea. Let's worship. Lord, we come before you and we remind ourselves of all of these things. We so often let the heaviness of our world and the circumstances of these lives and what we're going through, which often are difficult. But we see Paul and Silas arrested unjustly, beaten brutally, locked in stocks, with no idea what's going to happen next, and they worshiped you because of who you are and what you've done. And that is enough. You are that good. You are that worthy. You are that amazing. So together as a church, we want to stand. We want to lift our hands. We want to lift our praises. We kneel on these carpets. We want more of you, Lord. We want to declare that nothing in our life at this moment is better than you. There's no challenge in our life that is so difficult that you can't handle it. And we remind ourselves that there will be a day where there will be no more struggle, no more difficulty, no more imprisonments, no more beatings, no more stocks, no more tears, because we will be with you. And no matter what this life throws at us, you are faithful. And for that reason, Lord, you are worthy and you proved your faithfulness through the cross. And that is why we will now worship you. Lord, well up in our hearts that we might worship you for what you're worth, that we might worship you with all of our heart. In Jesus' holy name, amen.